Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as we hurtle ever closer to yet another deadline next week, ladies and gentlemen. The best laid plans are being made for thousands of families trying to get away before the school year starts again. After the trauma of A-level results and GCSE grades, there are exhausted parents up and down the country trying to figure out exactly what to do. And if there is a more complicated collection of rules, bylaws, regulations and guidance, I don't know where you'll find it. You might not think going on holiday is important to you, but it is absolutely vital for an awful lot of people who have been working non-stop or holed up in their tiny flats for months on end. A cheap getaway is all they crave, and if they have got children, they have to go while the school holidays are on. It's that simple. But there are still massive roadblocks in the way. Traffic light systems, testing requirements, vaccine passports to name but a few. This morning, we'll be talking to travel expert Paul Charles to try and make sense of it all. And we need your stories as well, particularly around the testing shambles, because we're being told that they want to put a ceiling on the amount of money that can be charged for these tests, whether they be antigen tests before you go on holiday, whether they be PCR tests when you come back from holiday. Uh, the whole thing is a complete and utter mess, I have to say. 0344 Also this morning, Morning. Uh, I want to talk about GPs again because I'm still getting hundreds of reports of surgeries not being fully opened, doctors hiding behind receptionists and delays months long for procedures that should have been done last year. Why isn't the self-imposed NHS crisis being fixed yet? We'll ask Professor Angus Dalgleish, of course, about that. Helen Dale is here as well with her take on the week and a view from Australia where the lockdowns are intensifying despite their low incidence of COVID cases and deaths. We'll have something to say about freedom of speech as well. 0344 499 1000. We'll be checking in with journalist Deborah Kolka in Greece and we're heading over to America to catch up with former President Trump advisor Sebastian Gorka who will have a thing or two to say about the resignation in disgrace of former Democratic hero Andrew Cuomo. Plus... As ever, we need to hear from you. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And what are you doing? We particularly want to hear your NHS stories this morning. I've already got plenty that came into me on social media yesterday uh, after I retweeted a tweet from someone who was sitting in an empty doctor's surgery. But also, if you are travelling anywhere and you are trying to get away somewhere, we'd love to hear from you as well because it's so complicated, it's so confusing. Even some airlines are not able to give advice properly. We'll tell you all about that story as well. It's also Thursday, so Helen Nicklin is here with some special sake to celebrate the ending of the 
Olympic Games in Japan. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, let us talk to our very, very first guest this morning. It's Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, a travel consultancy firm. Because I'll tell you what, things are going from bad to worse at the moment, it seems. And time is running out for an awful lot of people. If you're in Scotland, some of your kids are probably going back next week to uh, to school. If you live in England and Wales, your children are probably not going back until the beginning of September. But that only leaves you a couple of weeks uh, to go away. Let's find out from Paul what the latest is. Paul, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are so, you? well, I'm, I'm fine, but I'm getting a lot of requests from people to ask you an awful lot of questions. So I hope you've got an awful lot of answers for me. OK, um, let's hope so. Um, a lot of people are saying, yes, it's a good thing now. Finally, they're going to put a cap on these testing uh, regimes, these companies that have been making an absolute fortune. We saw at the weekend piles and piles and piles of tests outside of pharmacies. Has that problem been solved yet, as far as you know? Well, undoubtedly, the main provider involved in those drop boxes and the piles and piles of tests have sent extra resource in to clear them up. So it does seem they have removed them. But how long they were sitting there is anyone's guess. Mm. And of course, the thing about these tests is they have to be lab checked within a certain amount of time. So uh, who knows if they meet the criteria or not for being checked and tested in in the right time frame. Overall, Mike, and I know we can go into detail This is a national embarrassment. It is a national scandal that the PCR testing regime has caught so many people within its trap over the summer period. And it's put off so many people from flying and traveling generally. And it's got to change. And whilst there are calls for a cap, as you say, of maybe 40 pounds on a test, even that's too expensive, in my view, for many people, bearing in mind the cost of doing these is around 20 pounds yes so not only it's not only about a cap it's also about whether many of these pcr tests are actually needed for those who are fully jabbed there's no reason why i coming back from a green country fully jabbed safe country should have to take a pcr test when an antigen or lateral will do and that is the problem because an awful lot of other european countries are charging a lot less money for these tests but they're also very confusing i've had uh, some conversations with a friend of mine who's going to try to get to croatia right and apparently and this is according to simon calder sorry to mention one of your uh, further other colleagues international travel is full of hurdles he says for example uh, taking a covid test for a trip to croatia less than 48 hours before departure it actually turns out the time frame means before arrival so yes, that, this, that's, this quite important, lot, that's quite an important. That's quite important. It's catching a lot of people out. It yeah. really is because there are different word. There's different wording based on whichever country you're going to. Now, yeah. obviously, there's an onus on us as travellers to check all the rules before we fly or, or go by Eurostar or ferry or whatever. But there are so many different rules. It's no wonder people have been put off and they can't be bothered with the hassle and the faff, uh, as well as the cost, of course. Mm. So, yes, Croatia is a good example. There are other countries out there that have different wording based on whether it's 48 hours or 72 hours before your arrival or your departure. And, of course, it especially affects those coming from long-haul countries where there are major time zone differences. And you've got to work out, well, does that include the time zone change or not in terms of my arrival or departure? So it's it's still far too complicated. And we haven't seen the international cooperation on this that we should have done. Well, exactly right. And every country seems to have different sort of uh, little wrinkles. For example, again, Croatia, I'm told, will only accept certain types of tests that have been approved by the European Union and won't accept all tests. And apparently the tests that BA and TUI have been using might not have been actually valid. So um, my friend actually asked 
asked British Airways for an explanation as to which test to take, and this was the answer they got back. We're sorry for the delay in getting back to you. Unfortunately, due to the complexity of various entry restrictions, this isn't something we can advise on. So you can't even get advice from BA. Yeah, this is the problem. The airlines themselves are seeing the rules change so frequently and so quickly that they don't want to give advice, actually, because it might land them in trouble. And ultimately, they say the onus is on the consumer. They don't mind taking your money, though. Yeah, this goes back to the nub, though, of the national scandal that is the PCR system in that there's no regulation of it. There's no oversight by government. It's Mm. an industry that has grown up at short notice over a very short period of time. There are companies who are making millions from these PCR tests and they're employing heavyweight lawyers and firms to advise them. And yet they're making a lot of money during what is a pandemic. So you've got to ask yourself, A, whether it's ethical, and B, why isn't government effectively overseeing this system? Yeah, well, exactly right. And I mean, the trouble is, as I said earlier in my my opening remarks, if you wanted to make a more complicated situation, um, you just couldn't make it up. You could not create this particular kind of maelstrom of madness. You just just don't know what to do. So, I mean, well, it's deliberate. So if you you are deliberate. Yeah. So they're trying to stop people going anywhere. So if you so so my final piece of advice for my friend going trying to go to Croatia, should they go or should they just not bother? Well, I'd always advise someone to travel, of course, being uh, someone in the travel industry, but try and make it work. What you've got to do is obviously make sure you're examining the exact rules for going into Croatia and those coming out as well with the pre-departure test and the day two test, etc. But he can't find find any advice that actually works because everybody... Well, Croatia... So Croatia in particular, um, my understanding on Croatia is that you can get in with any european medical agency uh, approved vaccine mm. so if you've got astrazeneca or you've even if you've got the indian uh, serum yeah. institute batch which has been subject to some controversy then you will be allowed in we're not hearing stories of people being turned back from borders no but but the croatian the croatian um, information is that you also in addition to being double jabbed you need if you're over 18 to have um, a test as well Yes, well, that may be the case. And it is with with some countries where even if you've been jabbed, you've got to take a PCR test. You know, what's happening in reality, Mike, is that borders are so busy. Border officials are not checking every I. They're not Mm. they're not checking for every dot on every I. Yeah, but you don't want to risk being turned away, do you? Well, the airline, of course, won't let you fly from Heathrow or wherever you're flying from if the documentation is not up to scratch. So you'll be caught, if you like, before you leave the UK. Mm. And put it this way, if you've got a negative PCR test, if you've got the right jabs and you're fully jabbed, then you should be able to get into pretty well most countries that will have British visitors. Right. And as far as the new deadline of August the 16th is concerned, if you are, in fact, coming back after that date into this country, is it right that uh, what people are telling me is that if you are pinged because somebody gets an infection on the plane, uh, as Julie Hartley Brewer was when she came back from uh, Mallorca earlier uh, last month, if that's the case, you don't have to self-isolate if you're double jabbed. Is that right? Well, I think the same rules should apply, that essentially if when you're back within the confines of UK borders, then the rules are that you don't have to self-isolate domestically, then there's no reason why you should self-isolate if you come in from a plane either. So I think it would be uh, a good one to test the government on. But I'd be saying to consumers, obviously, stick with the local advice. But fundamentally, if the advice domestically is don't self-isolate, then there's no reason why you should self-isolate having come off a plane. And the reality is you should take a 
antigen test as a minimum to keep checking that you're okay. Yeah. But there may yeah. be instances where you do have to take a PCR test. But fundamentally, if you're fully jabbed, in the vast majority of cases, you're more protected and you're certainly at less risk of going into hospital. Right. And what about those people who are actually travelling? I mean, what's your sense of how many people have travelled? Because obviously we were told uh, once some of the changes were made most recently last week, um, there was a bit of a surge in bookings. There was lots of people going away. Um, I'm going to be speaking to a colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine, a journalist who's out in Greece. She was flying out of Manchester, got stuck at the wrong airport because the plane, unbeknownst to her, had decided to amalgamate two flights flown to one part of Greece to drop off some people, waited there for an hour, picked up some more people, flown to the part of Greece that she was going to. Journey took an awful lot longer, a bit more stressful, kids crying and all that sort of thing, you know. Um, what's your sense of the overall picture? Well, there are flights which are smooth and work okay, and there are, there are those like that in that instance where, of course, there are going to be issues. And sadly, it's a, it's a part of this period where... Um, people are working with unknown protocols and regulations and the airlines themselves are trying to get back to some semblance of normality. So sadly, there will be moments where you are caught up in the midst of what may seem like madness. Overall, the picture is one of more people are starting to travel, that we're through the worst of this, that things are picking up, but they are still at much lower levels than they would be normally. So typically the industry at the moment is round about 25, 30% of its usual capacity for August in a summer peaks period. So it's not good enough at all to save a lot of businesses and certainly not good enough to save jobs longer term. And the fear in the industry, of course, is that unless things like the PCR tests, unnecessary testing are removed, then we're not going to see the full recovery and stronger bounce back that many have expected. Even the wider economy, as you've seen this morning, is not growing as fast as many expected. Yes, it's not bad growth at 4.8%, but even the wider economy is struggling to get into that full liftoff mode. So imagine the problems in the travel sector, which is being stung by some of these restrictions, which seem to be in place for many months yet. Well, this is the problem, isn't it? Because I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday who was like, well, what do you mean the lockdowns uh, are still uh, strangling the economy and the lockdown's over? Well, it's not for an awful lot of parts of the, the economy, including, as you said, the travel business, the hotel business in, in, this, in this country, the tourism business in this country, the events business in this country. All sorts of people have not been able to make money and are still not making any money. Mike, I think fundamentally, where is the Prime Minister? Where is the Transport Secretary? Where are they whilst we're having this ongoing debate every day about the national scandal and embarrassment mm. that is PCR testing? We've not heard a word from them in the last no. few days. Well, I'll so tell you, I'll tell you why, where, why I'll, tell you where, I'll, tell you where I'll tell you where struggle. Boris Johnson is not, and he's not self-isolating, even though uh, he was on a plane with somebody who apparently tested positive. So the rules don't apparently apply to him. Well, this is the thing. They've put in place layers and layers of complex measures and testing, and they're not unravelling those as fast as they should be. Why not, bearing in mind they have uh, taken away most domestic restrictions now and trying to get the domestic economy moving as fast? Let's see these restrictions removed fast from overseas travel. Let's see the Competition and Markets Authority come back urgently, not in a month's time, but this week, on the issues facing the industry and PCR high costs from suppliers. Mm. Let's have a little bit more momentum to save jobs and protect businesses in the industry. And we're not seeing that from top down at the moment. We're really not. And I mean, I don't know where Keir Starmer is either. The only thing I've heard him say in the last couple of days is that the alpaca must die. 
You know, I mean, there's nothing else that he's got to say about the business of this country, the travel industry, you know, the tourism industry, the, the lockdown, the PCR disaster. I mean, what's happening? Well, I don't I don't want to knock alpacas. They're beautiful animals. But, you know, maybe, well, maybe good luck trying to get to... to Peru to go and buy one. <laughs> Sometimes, yes, you won't get any more. <laughs> Sometimes the science does matter, of course, and it's important. But I'm not an alpaca expert. No, but, uh, no. Listen, this is going to be an alpaca of... free zone. Don't worry, Paul, we're not going to go there. But but uh, stay with us, if you will, because we're going to come back and ask you a few more questions. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, a travel consultancy firm. And a couple of you uh, have been in touch with some questions and also just some information as well. Uh, I've got this um, from um, uh, somebody who's called Janice. Sorry. Recently, a friend of mine and his family left the UK for Hungary. He drove through five countries. None of them asked for pre-departure PCR test results, and they were only interested in NHS vaccinations. Well, uh, in addition to that, Paul, I've got Gareth from Derby has rung in to say he's going to Mallorca on Monday. Uh, him and his wife are both double va- uh, double jabbed. Uh, do they still need to do PCR tests? I'm not sure what the Spanish situation is. Uh, on Spain now, I think they've, they've relaxed that now so that you can just go in if you're fully jabbed into the uh, Balearic yes. Island. There's still there's still a curfew in place, I think, in the Balearic's garage, so look out for that mm. um, among restaurants and bars. I'm not sure you'll be having a late-night whiskey, to be honest. No, but, but that's all right. You can just get up early and go to the beach for one. Um, yes. But, the, but I, I suppose the thing is as well that because that's an amber list country and there was a fear that it might, I mean, it doesn't matter if it goes amber plus anymore, but it might be a problem if it goes red. Well, I think it would be a problem if he went Amber Plus because obviously um, he'd have to quarantine when he got back, even though he's fully jabbed. But for, haven't they uh, stopped that now, the Amber Plus days. quarantine? Well, they, they have. No, if Amber Plus exists, it still exists as a category. They'll never admit that they abandoned it. They right. obviously took France off the Amber Plus category after causing 20 days of mayhem for families during July and August. Just goes to show the government don't really know what overseas travel is all about. And then um, Amber Plus, you know, hasn't exactly gone for good. They could always bring it back. But I think the Balearics um, will be okay for a while longer yet. I think the nervousness is around September, October time. Do you start seeing infections rise again as we get into the uh, cooler months of the year? And therefore, um, it could be that they go back to uh, tougher regulations. But I hope not. I hope that the prime minister can be taken at his word when he talks about rolling the regulations back for good and not bringing them back. So I hope for now we're going to see the regulations disappear rather than come back. Well, I think the problem, part of the problem, certainly in, in, in Europe is concerned, uh, is that because Boris Johnson and this government have made out that we've got so many cases uh, all over the country, that this is such a bad, dangerous place, that they've put all these restrictions on us in Europe because they think that we're full of uh, COVID, when in fact yeah. it's not really the case. No, it's a, it's a project fear that has been taking place, similar to Brexit. Uh, same team, same uh, same uh, group of ministers involved in Brexit are obviously involved in the pandemic, and therefore they have put in place a project fear to effectively show that Britain um, is doing things differently. And it has put other countries without doubt. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of discussion and chatter between the Foreign Office and various governments all the time at a very serious level. But um, ultimately, it's put fear into people. And that's why we've been on several countries banned list effectively. I mean, Italy is a really good example. Frankly, I don't believe Italy should have in place a five day quarantine for those Brits going to Italy. Um, We're not that bad. And we're managing the situation. But the perception is that Britain has 
got a variant out of control. Mm. I don't believe it is out of control, certainly not now. It's just we're learning to live with COVID at 20,000 infections a day. Right. And of course, most of those infections are not serious anyway. Well, of course, and that is the whole point. You know, there will be infection rates that go up, but the point is is that we're supposed to be, you know, intelligent enough to learn from how to cope with it and how to manage it rather than just panicking and running back behind the curtain every time something happens. Laurie in Rothwell is questioning uh, if they can take a dog with them to Europe. Apparently the dog, and this is a good one, has got a Lithuanian passport. Uh, gosh, well, I'm not an expert on pet on pet passports in Europe. Um, Lithuanian passport. Gosh, okay, I'm not clear on that one. I think fundamentally, uh, again, you're going to have to check with the Lithuanian embassy on that one, yeah. or wherever you go, whether you're going in Europe. Different uh, rules apply. Um, obviously, with dogs, though, generally they they have to go into quarantine for some time. Uh, when you take them around Europe, um, if you've got a British passport, of yeah. course, which it sounds like I mean, you my might. understanding from, from knowing what I know about taking dogs to places like France is that you now have to get a new pet passport, which you, you didn't have to do if you were in the, when we, before, when, before we left the EU. And yes, you, you do. That's you right. basically have to get a new sort of uh, certification from your vet in this country that the dog doesn't have rabies. And I think if you do that, um, then you can go in. But I know that there are restrictions, for example, on how often you can take the dog to France, because I think I'm right in saying that you're only allowed to take it once every four months or something like that. So it's a bit yeah. complicated. Um, yeah. Mike from Liverpool's uh, asking a question as well. We'll come back to that one in a moment. How about this one from Nathan in Portsmouth? My partner and I are hoping to go to Spain Saturday and have had to have eight tests in total as unvaccinated. And we're now waiting for the results of the first PCR test before we know if we are going away. We have had eight holidays cancelled, so I thought we would just go for it. Not much information about being unvaccinated, which is disappointing. And that is true. I mean, if you're not vaccinated, it's tricky, isn't it? Yes. And I think the government uh, has put in place effectively an incentive scheme. It's basically if you're fully jabbed, then you're going to get a lighter touch testing regime than those who are not jabbed. So there are reasons, of course, you may not be jabbed. It could be for medical reasons. Well, that's right. Uh, We mustn't assume that you deliberately don't want a jab for the sake of it. It could be for medical reasons. Um, and obviously, yes, it can be much tougher if, if you're not jabbed. And obviously, other countries are putting in place more measures for the unjabbed. Yeah, if you can get a jab, take it. But that's the other jab. thing, isn't it? You know, there is a sense that a lot of what this is uh, all about is trying to convince as many people as possible to get vaccinated. And so, yeah. you know, you're being threatened effectively that if you don't have a vaccination, you won't be able to go on holiday. It's the medical equivalent of an air miles scheme, basically. The more well, you, yeah, uh, except the more they, don't actually, the medicine, they don't actually inject the air miles card into your arm and make you walk around with a chip inside you for the rest of time. Um, how about this from Justine? The whole PCR COVID passport travel rules are completely unsustainable long term. There are too many countries, particularly in southern Europe, that rely on tourism. And that's true because I spoke to um, our regular guest, Tonya Buxton, who's in Cyprus, where her family live. And she was saying that this, in, in Cyprus, people are devastated by the fact that nobody's going there and they can't get any of their economies going because they're, they're so reliant on British tourism. Yes, so many countries have been impacted by the lack of British tourists going. And I think the government knows that, obviously, and has been playing a bit of a Brexit card here, where they've deliberately tried to keep more people in the UK to spend their pent up cash here and therefore help the British economy at the expense of European economies. Pretty certain that's been part of the reason why these rules have been so slow to be relaxed. But also, uh, 
foreign countries, uh, European countries, especially the southern Med countries, do rely on the British spending power, of course. They need it. That's why they're so desperate to get the British tourists back, let alone the impact on our own aviation and wider travel industry. Mm. So the sooner we can get some of these restrictions released, the better to help our European neighbours, who we need strong diplomatic relations with, get back to some sort of economic normality. Well, that would be nice. Any likelihood of any sort of announcements travel-wise in the next week or so, Paul, as far as you're aware? Oh, no, they're all on holiday in uh, the Department <laughs> for Transport. So uh, I don't think we're going to get that much out of them. The next traffic light review is due on the 25th of August. Uh, that could affect bank holiday travel, of course, which is the concern. So I hope the government signal they're not going to make many changes and affect people's bank holiday travel plans. Mm. But um, the big, the big issues are let's change the PCR testing system, especially for the fully jabbed, because it's preventing many people going away. Secondly, let's see the government now start to remove the traffic light system and move to a very simple system of basically red and green. It's either a red country Mm. or you can go there. That should be the mantra coming out of government. And you know, if they did that, they'd get a lot more support from people across the UK. I'm sure that's absolutely right. Paul, thanks very much indeed. Paul Charles there, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, a travel consultancy firm. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, uh, we're going to talk about the NHS now because uh, we got a figure this morning uh, which is probably going to rise over the course of the next few months. Almost five and a half million people now are waiting to start treatment at the end of June, according to the latest data from NHS England. Uh, Now, we're already into August, so you can imagine that's probably already jumped up to about seven or eight or nine or ten million uh, it's the highest known backlog of patients since records started in 2007 uh, the only good news is that patients waiting a year or longer for treatment has slightly fallen but there's no question in my mind and anybody else's mind that the nhs is still in crisis and it's nothing to do particularly with covid but it is to do with the way that the nhs reacted to covid yesterday um tory rambo sent a tweet out which i retweeted and it was a picture of a completely empty room with some chairs in it in which nobody was occupying them uh, some marks on the floor as to how you should socially distance and it was of course inside a gp surgery he says i'm currently sat waiting for my gp practice manager to discuss why waiting 18 weeks for a blood test is not okay it seems they're rushed off their feet this morning And he says people will die unless GPs do their job, the one they're paid to do. And I know uh, that many of you will say, well, my GP's been fine. I've seen my GP, but I've got an awful lot of social media tweets in the last 24 hours in which it's been proven to be completely the opposite situation. Let's talk to uh, Angus Dalgleish now, Professor of Oncology at St George's Hospital Medical School. Angus, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for talking to me. I know it's a mixed picture and I don't wish to be unfair to uh, GPs who are doing their jobs very well and very um, assiduously and and, and seeing patients as and when they need to. But there's an awful lot of people telling me that they've had problems seeing either their GP or getting into um, uh, to see a consultant after being referred to see one. And it seems to me that it's still a problem for an awful lot of people trying to get treatment on the, the service, which is supposed to be the greatest health service in the world. Well, uh, from my point of view, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have I've seen people who've been able to access their GP and had good relationships with them for a long time. But what really concerns me is that a very good friend of mine had uh, very alarming symptoms and uh, he, he really felt he uh, needed to uh, be assessed. He wanted a blood test and possibly a scan. And he called the GP and this fellow is a doctor 
and the GP gave him an appointment for three weeks' time right. on the telephone. And uh, these were, you know, acutely accelerating symptoms. He had no option but to go and arrange these tests privately. So he had the blood test and the scan arranged privately. It was about £1,000 or so, right. but clearly really well spent because it revealed a presence of a condition which was treatable at that time and which he had the treatment. But in three weeks' time, he could have been paralysed mm. by it. I mean, this is just one, and it's nothing to do with oncology, by the way, but this is just one vignette of someone I know very well. Now, many other people I know in um, areas served by good GP practices, uh, they've kind of given up, yeah. wanted to go to the doctor. So there's an enormous um, depressurizing on GPs because they know that when they go there, there's no point, mm. that they're not going to get an appointment for two or three uh, weeks. And uh, that, that what they've got, they probably will, it will clear up. And so they go and get other treatments off the internet, etc. So it really is a very major problem. And, you know, it's only going to get worse. Uh, when we went into the last election, everybody said they were going to supply 5,000 UGPs, which is exactly what we, in fact, need. Mm. But we're going to need even more now because the third of GPs are due to retire in the next few years. And the new graduates of the medical schools coming out who do GPs, um, hardly any of them want to work full time. So they only want to work part time. Yeah. And this was uh, a thing which I was furious about when Tony Blair gave uh, the new GP contract and, and they enabled them to opt out of hours and weekends. Yeah. So I was completely wrecking the uh, continuity. And so people basically took that as an option well. We, that we can opt out to weekends, after hours, and uh, go part-time. So that's compounded it. Yeah. But the lack of new people coming through, I believe that the GP practice, the GP model is actually going to collapse and they're mm. going to have to replace it with something yes. else. Yes, it's interesting you say that because I have heard that a lot from other uh, people in your profession who say that actually, you know, it's been such a bad situation for such a long time that this has made it worse. But surely um, it would be at least a bit better if these GP surgeries that are currently not really operational started operating properly. Uh, let me read you a couple of texts that I've got just in the last uh, few hours. Chris says, I've been waiting over a year to get a camera down my throat to check for stomach cancer. Finally got an appointment, which was then cancelled on the day I was due to go because the hospital staff got pinged. And I've now given up. So, I mean, this poor guy uh, could be um, in receipt of some form of cancer, which could be treatable, uh, but he can't get to see anybody, so he's not bothering. And Nadia says this, I'm extremely grateful for the free care I received in the last 24 hours going to hospital, but after begging for pain relief in tears, I got some paracetamol one hour later. It's carnage because no one can get to see a GP, so they're all flooding the A&Es, and 90% get sent home after 15 minutes checkup with the doctor. This is absolutely true. If you can't get to see your GP, the, the only other alternative is to uh, go to the A&E. And they really can't cope. I mean, I would agree with that. They're just literally being flooded. And this is leading to, in the, uh, the old battlefield days of triage, so you've got lots of uh, potential injuries and you can only handle a few of them. So you triage them. So you say, well, I'll, I'll do you because you're bad. And the others, basically, you just ignore because right. you don't have the resources to do it. But these others who they ignore are like my friend who, who basically uh, wasn't that ill in their eyes to come in and was fobbed off with paracetamol or something else, and but would end up becoming a statistics anyway. Mm. So the whole thing is going round and round. And if I may, if I may 
it brings me back to something I've been passionate about this uh, the, the problem with the NHS yes, for a long, long, long time. And one of the things it's brought up by one of my colleagues yet again, uh, and uh, I campaigned on it, is that why on earth are we only educating uh, ex-doctors uh, through the medical schools in this country and nurses, when in fact we need three ex-doctors, and we've coped by importing them. And I know so many people who make wonderful great doctors, they get three A's or whatever's required, and they get rejected by the medical schools because there's no place and they're not good enough. Mm. I feel personally furious and uh, really despondent that these people should be going to medical school, they would make excellent doctors, and they say there's not the space and the facilities for training. Well, if you're overwhelmed, there's no shortage of patients, and they actually have the cheat to say it on some of the number of hospitals, which, as you know, they keep closing. Yes. So they imply that if you close a hospital, you don't need so many doctors. I mean, the whole thing is uh, is based on completely flawed thinking and yeah. planning. But this is my it, problem with the NHS, Angus, over time. You know, people complain... Uh, from various sides of the political divide about whether one party tries to shut it down, privatise it, another party wants to give it more money. I mean, money's clearly not the answer because there's no shortage of money. The management of the NHS seems to me to be the problem and the future prospects of the NHS need to be looked at properly because there's no other business that I know of that would consistently have a crisis every single year in the winter and say that, you know, it's about to be overrun, which happens every single year as far as I can remember, as long far back as I can remember, um, and nothing gets done about it. No, I, well, I totally agree. And uh, one of the things that I have, uh, have been doing, actually, I looked at it. I first wrote this document in 2013, mm. and it's uh, appeared in various things. And I had a, 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 a pretty of it in The Spectator about the crumbling edifices, the pillars of the NHS that have to be addressed. The whole structure is madness. We have a purchaser-provider splits. We have all these people pretending that they're purchasing services of somebody else, and often they're on the same side of the fence. We waste 8% of the budget on that. That is unbelievable. Mm. And then we have the uh, PPEs, the private-public partnerships, uh, which to build hospitals and run and maintain them. Yeah. When I saw the figures, and these are treasury figures, we borrowed about 12 billion and signed up that we'd pay back 97 I billion. Know. The worst deal in the history of deals. You, know. it, you would have to be brain dead to do that, <laughs> or you, you you are being paid in order to make somebody else rich, which we know has gone on a well, lot. Well, I mean, to me, it was the equivalent of those kind of payday loan companies. You know, it was like, oh, well, we've got to get some money to build some hospitals. We don't care how much money we have to pay back. We just need some money today to go and, you know, put a bet on a horse. I mean, that was basically what it was like. Exactly. Well, it really took off under the Blair government. It, it was started by the major government and the Blair government came in saying that they would kill such a stupid idea. And they then went on and wrote 440 of them as, uh, because Gordon <laughs> Brown sort of keep it off the books. I mean, there's two suggestions I've got and, and some of them have been made by other people to me. Um, but in France, for example, GPs are paid per patient that they see as opposed to per patient on their books, which I think would be a much better way uh, of encouraging them to do a bit more work. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, they're shirking their workload or anything like that. But if you were only paid by the numbers that you saw rather than numbers on your books, it might cause you to actually go into the office a bit more and see more people. The other thing I thought was quite a good innovation, and my own children benefited from this a couple of times, was the, the erection of sort of walk-in centres where you could go and get treatment 
at any time of the day or night because, you know, sometimes children can't wait until the morning at midnight. Sometimes if they're ill, you can take them into a walk-in centre, get some kind of prescription, go to the all-night chemist. You know what I mean? It seems like walk-in centres might be more efficient than the dreaded sort of GP surgery. Well, as I said, I think that the, the uh, GP model is going to collapse and you have to think, how are you going to replace this? So I agree, we need walk-in surgeries and they will be, they need centres which will have really expert nursing staff who are, are very good at uh, sensing out what's really urgent and what's not. Pharmacists, we need to have these centres with really experienced pharmacists uh, because there's a lot of drugs there that I believe with a bit of education that people should have access to, but you need a prescription. And this causes the problem because you have to get the prescription from the GP to the pharmacy. And even as a doctor, I'm not allowed to go in and do a prescription for myself or a colleague for a very simple non-toxic, non-addictive drug. It, I have to go and get the GP mm. to do it at their leisure. So I can't pick it up till the GP has done it. I think that system is ridiculous. We, are, we now have uh, senior nurses that in specialties can approve uh, various drugs. That should really become the norm. That the fact that you have to have a doctor prescribe what I call the C layer of drugs, mm. because like A, B, C, but C are the ones which are just above the aspirin and right. paracetamols and things like that. That would make so much difference if we could get rid of that. Now the other thing is with regards to the the health service structure, and this is where the, the people come out and greatly criticise and go completely ballistic about this. But I've looked very, very carefully. I've written several uh, documents about what we should do about the NHS. But one of the things you cannot escape from is that the, uh, the French, the German, and the Australian systems, they are far, far superior mm. to uh, the NHS. Now, one of the things that they all have in common is you all have to pay a bit mm. for every service. Yes, there's, there's no idea of being free completely at the point of service. And I know this is what the people sign up to the religion free at the point of service, uh, but actually it does far, far more harm than good. Mm. Uh, and even one of my very left-wing socialist consultant colleagues, uh, after a, a few years in the A&E, basically says, I completely agree with you. Everybody should pay mm. uh, uh, for, for the services, just like they do in Australia. If it's very severe and it's needed, you'll get it refunded back. But at a stroke, she feels, my colleague, she feels if there was this even a minor charge up front, it would reduce the pressure by 20% and allow it to be a much more civilised process. Mm. And I, I completely agree with this. As an oncologist, uh, it's, it's, I think, slightly different. But from the general pressure on general medicines, I do think that this, it is high time we address this and realise that actually it would improve the service because by doing the charge and then paying a bit, 10, 20 pounds or something, the costing and just how much everything costs would become apparent. Mm. And one of my patients who had to go to France uh, said he, he had to take out insurance. And when he went, uh, he broke his arm falling off a ladder and he's doing his house up. And he said he was horrified that this falling off the ladder cost for him to have a, a plaster, etc. The bill was 2,200 euros. And it said because he had the state insurance, it would only be 200 euros. And But because he had taken out voluntary excess insurance, it would be zero mm. euros. So you'd have to pay a thing. 
But he said, I was shocked just how much everything cost. Mm. And I said, you know, this is what we need in this country because the managers don't know. They don't seem to no. care. Where, what other business in the world where you are a monopoly buyer do you pay three times mm. difference for common items like gloves and masks? So the NHS in one part of the country will pay, say, £5 for a pair of special gloves, where in another part of the country they'll pay £1.20. Mm. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a monopoly, I would have thought you would have universal, the cheapest supply going. So this shows you the incompetence that we're having to deal with in the, in the NHS and why it needs totally restructuring. It's as if you've been listening to me for the last 10 years. This is everything that I've been saying for the last decade, that this is what we need to do. But we're, we're running out of time. Let me just ask you one last question about the waiting list uh, and the waiting times. Five and a half million people now, as of the end of June, waiting uh, to get some form of treatment at the hands of the NHS. It's only going to get worse. How are they going to fix that? I agree it's only going to get worse. And I, I honestly believe that unless they do this restructuring and some of the other things I wanted to talk about, until the service is clinically led with administrators to help them, as opposed to managers using doctors and nurses like train drivers and porters and trains, which is how they treat us, you're never going to get that. Now, a colleague of mine, when COVID struck and the managers disappeared, actually had the gumption to take over the management of his surgical operation in a big hospital, and it's worked far, far more efficiency. Uh, now when the managers are back, they're trying to uh, deconstruct it. So this is one of the central tenants too. We must make it a clinically-led service. The doctors know what the patients really need. We don't need PC-correcting managers telling us to do all the things which, at the end of the day, are not important. And the NHS should not be doing and pay, paying for half the things it does now. And that is another major pillar that needs to be completely eliminated from the, the onus and the burden on it. Great stuff, Angus. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. We must talk some more because you and I clearly have a lot of agreement uh, on what happens to, to the NHS, what should happen to it, uh, and where we should go next. Because right now, it is basically uh, finished. It's not working. It's not fit for purpose. It's run by complete and utter idiots. And it needs to be changed because people's health is at risk. People's lives are at risk. And never mind saving the NHS. Save the health of this nation, please. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, it is time to head straight to the capital uh, of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., to be precise, in the company of Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Sebastian, good to see you, man. It's been too long. Great to see you, Mike. It has been too long, and I, I, I apologise for that. I don't understand why it's taken me so long to get back in touch <laughs> with you. But I have to say, uh, a rather pleasing result uh, when Andrew Cuomo, who first said he wasn't going to resign because he didn't think he'd done anything wrong, uh, then gave a very mealy-mouthed speech about how somehow culture had changed around him and he didn't realise what he was doing was wrong. <laughs> yeah, Ra- Randy Andy uh, is gone. K- kind of. It's a weird... Uh, I- I'm resigning, but uh, I'm going to be here for two weeks. This pathetic individual doesn't have anywhere to go and live. Can you believe it? He got $12 million for the book that his team wrote for him about his courage in the coronavirus crisis. And all he has is the governor's mansion. He has to find somewhere to live. It's an absolute joke. But, but But this is the man who said, well, it's an Italian thing. I mean, it's just a cultural thing, groping people, kissing people on the lips when they don't want you to, yeah. rubbing. This is, this is the best one. He is protected by New York state troopers, one of which was rather comely, who he requested accompany him on his trips, and he would rub her tummy without oh, yeah. getting her permission. Uh, it, it's shocking that he's leaving, but yes. the sad thing As is... As you say, give... obviously that is a very well-known uh, Italian cultural <laughs> move. I can't say that I've I... noticed it before from any other Italian people. He also, <laughs> I see that one of the accusations was of a woman who he said, let's have a selfie, and he was sort of cupping his hand uh, around her backside, uh, which wasn't something that she was very comfortable with. I mean, I don't understand men that do this. I just don't get it. It, it is weird, but some guys are just creepy, yeah. and he's a creep. You, you look at him, and this is not a surprise, but, but there's a much, much larger story mm. here. The fact that this individual was lauded. I played a montage on my radio show of everything that people at CNN and MSNBC said about him in the last year, how, how he is the real president, Donald Trump isn't the president, mm. and how he will be the next president. There was, they, 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 we have hosts here who said, hey, guys, who said, you know, he's so great, I'm a Cuomo-sexual now. Uh-huh. I mean, th- th- it was just left-wing perversion. Mm. This was the golden child of the Democrats. Now he's down in flames. Will he come back? Who knows? But, but you know, two things, two things. Number one, Janice Dean at Fox News, mm. the weather girl. Yes. We owe her a massive debt of gratitude. Her in-laws were two of the 15,000 New Yorkers who died because Cuomo sent them back to the old people's home after they tested positive for COVID. Places that couldn't handle COVID patients because they're old people's homes. This woman was a tenacious bulldog. Fox allowed her every day to hammer this guy Mm. on Twitter, on on TV. And thanks to Janice Dean, I think in part he's going. And then then they flip it. If you look at the other side of the media, CNN, one of their big stars, is we call him Fredo Cuomo, is Chris Cuomo, who's the governor's brother, who, who, who would interview him at night, all palsy about, hey, how's it going? And you're saving New York. Mm. We now know he's on a forced vacation Mm. because he 
whilst he's interviewing his brother, was advising him on how to smear the women who were coming up to tell the world what he had done. So wow. it gives you an example of just how rotten the mm. mainstream media is. It really is unbelievable. And the thing that staggers me as well, Sebastian, is I remember very well during that time when Cuomo would come out with his supercilious uh, little press conferences as if he was the president of the United States. And some people, because of the nature of the way media is now, were, were more or less, as you say, referring to him. And, you know, Sky Television here, which is owned by NBC in the United States, was covering these things live. I would switch Sky on in the afternoon and go, why am I watching the governor of New York giving a statement about COVID figures in New York? Why do I need to see that? I live in England. You know, I quite like to see, you know, somebody asking a decent question to our government rather than watching, you know, some foreign government in a state where I used to live. Yeah, we, we could we could talk about Sky for, for hours. But th th think of this. This guy with his, his I mean, he's really arrogant. One of the clips I use when somebody asked him at a press conference about the, the 15,000 who died on his orders says, he actually said this, Mike, said, who cares where they died, whether they died in a hospital or in an old people's home? Who cares where they died? Oh, yeah. Th this this performance is what got him. And I'm not making this up. If your listeners don't believe me, got him an Emmy. OK, he wasn't awarded by, by Hollywood like a BAFTA. Mm. He wasn't awarded an Emmy for his leadership in using television. Wow. You can't make this up. It's That's insanity. Extraordinary. That's extraordinary. And let's talk about CNN for a moment, because an incredible story has also crossed my desk this week, uh, whereby it turns out that if you don't have a vaccination, you can't work at, N at CNN. They fired uh, three employees in New York this week because they turned up to work without having had a vaccination, contrary to the uh, instructions of Jeff Zucker, who apparently is the media company's president. Yeah, this is the big fight we're having here, uh, Mike, in, in, in the U.S., and it's about the, the rights of the individual. Look, I, I'm not anti-vaccine like you. I've no. got that little scar on my, my shoulder when I was vaccinated for whatever, mumps and measles when I was a kid. But I had COVID last year. I'm not afraid of the spooky Delta version. I took hydroxychloroquine. I've done my research. If you've had COVID, you have more antibodies in you than any vaccine can ever give you. So I'm not taking it. Sorry, it's not happening. Mm. And the idea that now in New York, in, in next month, they're going to institute a vaccine passport. It's going to be, there are your papers. Yeah, you it's extraordinary. I mean, New no, York no, City. It, it, New York City, a place I lived in the 80s, which is one of the most dangerous cities I've ever lived in. Had a lot of fun there. Didn't sleep for about 10 years. It was fantastic, right? What the hell's <laughs> happened to them? It's, it, it, it is shambolic. And, and I always say the same thing, that the left loves to use this line. You know, I'm a Catholic. I, I'm anti-abortion. They say, my body, my choice. Yeah. Well, guess what, Bozo? When it comes to vaccines, <laughs> my body, my choice. Yeah. The idea, the idea, Mike, that you're going to have to show your papers to go to a bar mm. in New York or to go to a disco when we have 6,000 illegal immigrants crossing the border every mm. single day. None of them, none of them have to show an ID and 20% of them plus have COVID yeah. and they're getting shipped across America. It is sheer insanity, but that's what we have under the Biden regime. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we have the same situation here with the people coming from France on dinghies, right? We found out this week that we're paying half a million pounds to store the dinghies in case they want them back in six months' time. 
You know, I'm like, why don't you just put a bullet in the dinghy and leave it to, to, to rot and so nobody can ever use it again? Then we find out that some of the people who have been put in uh, these hotels in the south coast of England have absconded. They weren't quarantining. Nobody was watching them. Nobody knows where they've gone. I mean, you couldn't make it How, up. how about this? How about this? We have, it'll be estimated by the end of the calendar year, two million illegal immigrants let in. Yeah. Two million. And as opposed to how we did it before under my old boss, Donald Trump, the Customs and Border Patrol are, aren't giving them court dates. Instead of shipping them back and instead of giving them court dates when they appear in front of an immigration judge, this is the best bit. They say, here's a phone number. And when you feel like it, call the courts to get a court date. Right. Mm. I'm here illegally. And trust me, honest, honest, governor, I'm going to call the court in three weeks time. It's insane. It is insane. Now, it's fair to say that Donald Trump was was the leader of, of wanting to get the troops out of Afghanistan, Sebastian. Yes. But I'm sure that he wouldn't have done it in the way that Joe Biden has done it, which has literally caused mayhem in Afghanistan. The country is now about to be overrun by the Taliban. They're about to take Kabul. Uh, they are they are enslaving women and children along the way. They are taking them into camps and, and forcing them to have sex and marry people. I mean, it's absolutely disgraceful what's happened. You know, what is he thinking? Well, he isn't thinking. This is a guy, you can see the video of him yesterday, Joe Biden, who forgets, literally, he gets <laughs> off Marine One, forgets how to get into the White yeah. House. Instead of, instead of, instead of, <laughs> instead of um, following the Secret Service officer's directions, he walks off the path onto the grass mm. and has to be corralled back in like a senile, doddering old yeah, man. around the back Look, of the when, bush is the way in. I know, I know. The bush behind White the House. back of the bush. I mean, the, the White House entrance, it's not, it's not you know, hard to miss it. Anyway, um, look, when I was in the White House uh, with regards to Afghanistan, I said, look, Afghanistan's still important, but only for one reason. The same reason it was important back in uh, October of 20 years ago. You cannot allow that territory to ever be used to mastermind mass casualty attacks against Americans on U.S. soil, period. Yeah. It's not about building hospitals or the ring road that not even the Soviets couldn't finish. It's about national security. That mission could have been done, I advised, with a very small contingent of special forces guys. So when the next al-Qaeda or ISIS unit pops up its head, you whack them, you slot them, and you give them a dirt nap. The idea that you just leave precipitously and now we get to watch every night the footage of taliban theocrats who want to kill you want to kill me rolling around in our humvees mm. carrying u.s machine guns that that's that's worse than saigon in yeah. in, in 72 yeah it's absolutely shocking. Uh, let's finish up with Hunter Biden. I don't know whether you've seen this latest uh, <laughs> story. Um, Hunter, now, if I just read this to you, and you notice that this is the son of the President of the United States of America, Hunter Biden claims Russian drug dealers stole another one of his laptops for blackmail while he was drugged out in a Vegas hotel room in 2018. I mean, I'm sorry. What else yeah. can you say? What, what else can you say? His, his, da his daddy is the commander in chief and has control of the nuclear football. This is look, I, I, I've played on my I have a weekly TV show. I've played for some reason. He stored his his phone conversations on his laptop, which, by the way, which are his laptops because he tried to deny it. But when your lawyers when your lawyers demand them back from mm. the repair shop, guess what, Hunter? That means that they're your <laughs> laptops. OK, 
He has a he has a telephone conversation where he's effing and blinding talking to somebody about how I'm in I'm in business with the effing chief spy of communist China. So whether it's whether it's snorting coke, uh, prost, Russian prostitutes, uh, the the $3 million from the disgraced wife of the former mayor of Moscow, or now this with the Chinese spy and the Russian hookers, this is a man who's this close to the most powerful individual mm. in the world. <laughs> when, I, when I was in the White House, I had to fill out an SF-86 to get my top secret clearance. I had to list all my foreign contacts. I'm just curious. I'm just curious whether Joe Biden in his clearance procedure had to talk about his son's foreign contacts with certain ladies of negotiable pleasure. Know what I mean, Mike? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it's lucky that I didn't know you when you were in the White House, because then you would have had to put my name down as one of your uh, contacts, and that may have when, when prevented you from out, getting the clearance. <laughs> when I filled it out, it was 76 bloody pages long. It's a guy who was born in the UK with all my contacts. I got my clearance, but it was 76 pages long. Amazing. When can we see you on your uh, weekly TV show, Sebastian? Uh, I will be I will be on radio in a few hours this afternoon and the weekly TV show is 7 p.m. every Sunday. So that's what that's uh, 2 p.m. Midnight. Hours. Yeah, no, no, oh, it's, no, it's uh, mid, mid, midnight UK. So, so it's on news, Newsmax. It's called the Gorka Reality Check and uh, you can watch it for free. You can get the Newsmax app and it, it's uh, an hour. We drill down on a big issue. This week, it's going to be the truth about COVID and you don't want to miss it. Great stuff. Sebastian Gorka, former advisor to Donald Trump. Great to see you again. See you again soon. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.